We'd like to uh, just uh, bring to your attention uh, the fact that this is the last of the uh, series uh, that we began uh, back in uh, the fall of uh, 1976, <laughs> a good long time ago, right? But um, I think it's been well worthwhile. We've covered a considerable amount of uh, real good material, we believe, and that's going to be helpful to you. We've given you nearly 200 pages of notes that uh, will help you, and we might say that those notes are available now in packets, will be available to you as complete packet, um, uh, and um, we hope that if you haven't gotten one, you will get in a complete packet and have it in your notes, and we hope that you won't just uh, put it on your note shelf, but that you'll use those notes and uh, really come to a depth of understanding uh, concerning this matter of um, discipleship. Not only what it is, but how it really works in our own individual lives and ultimately how it works as we use it in the lives of others as well. We want to uh, just make it known to you as well that if those packets of material can be of special help to others, we will have a quantity of them available uh, in the office if you are interested in getting additional copies. Our purpose in doing this, though, has been to give a background and a well-rounded understanding of the, the concept of discipleship. There's a lot of misunderstanding in regard to what discipleship is, and we sought to give to you a biblical definition and biblical methodology uh, that would help you not only to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to point others to be his disciple as well. We pointed out in the very beginning, and we want to stress it here at the end, that the only one true teacher, master, Lord, is Jesus Christ. Therefore, we never disciple people to ourselves. We don't go around having a bunch of disciples. Occasionally, somebody will, uh, will refer to uh, the flock under them or those that they are wor working with as the individual's disciples. That should be corrected, not only uh, um, just uh, in a general sense, but in a very specific sense. Anybody ever says something about your disciples, make clear to them that you have no desire to have disciples. The discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ is so far superior to the discipleship of Moses the discipleship of John the Baptist, the discipleship of the Pharisees, that um, nothing a human being could ever do could attain to it. We do not disciple men to follow us. We disciple men to follow Jesus Christ. And that should be the goal of discipleship. And it leads, uh, the, the wrong concept of discipleship leads to all kinds of misunderstanding. It is for this reason that you have uh, groups of people who look to a to a man who is a leader and uh, will follow him to the ends of the earth because he has been successful in discipling people to himself. And the attitude of every Christian should be that of John the Baptist when people came to him and said, what, uh, uh, what's happening? This man Jesus is coming along and he is taking away your disciples. Do you remember what John said? He must increase. I must decrease. And we never want to produce people who are independently dependent. Those that are, are uh, independent of Christ 
and dependent upon the counselor. But rather, we want people to be independent of the counselor and independent of the discipler and dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So our goal is not to have people that are independently independent or to be put it uh, better to be uh, dependently independent, but rather to be independently dependent. That's really the goal of discipleship. Not to be dependent upon the counselor, but dependent on Jesus Christ. Independent of the counselor, dependent on Christ, and never independent of the counselor and independent of Christ. We don't want to get people to the place that they're so self-sufficient they think they don't need the Lord. That's obviously not one of the goals of discipleship. And so we've talked considerably about this whole matter, and uh, we come tonight to this conclusion as sort of a summing up of the whole thing. We shared with you last week, however, that because we were so rushed at the end uh, of what we were doing, that we'd take a little bit of time to uh, look at this again. Remember we talked last week about the apologia. We talked about the fact that we are to be ready always to give an answer, an apologia. We looked at the book of Acts and saw how the Apostle Paul um, used his answer before several authorities as an opportunity to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we suggested to you that if you are interested in leading a person uh, into an effective witness for Christ, the best place to start is to teach him how to prepare an apologia. And we've suggested just three very simple steps that you say several things about the condition of your life previous to salvation. That you say several things concerning how, uh, what circumstances led up to your accepting Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, and that's a good opportunity to zero in on some of the methodology of the gospel. That is, to share a little bit as you share with them what Christ did for you, share with them a little bit of the good news of what he can do for them. Just make it a part of the testimony. And then finally, what took place after salvation that uh, causes you to recommend the Christian life. That is an apologia. That is an answer given. As people ask, as they see the difference in our life, as they are looking for an answer. And we suggested to you that you uh, go home and that you write out a testimony and that you have it well in mind and be able to use that with people and that you teach the person that you are discipling to Christ, that you teach that person to do the same. Now, it's just good uh, if we can act like uh, students for a moment and uh, just take a few minutes more to talk about these three phases. Let's not get them mixed up, however. Uh, it's awfully easy to make the transition so quickly that you move right into the, into the second point and the third point. You want to make it as smooth as possible. But let's have a couple of you share what your life was like before you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And I'll stop you if, um, if you go beyond the before, all right? Uh, because we want to get in mind some samples, some ideas of, of what it, of what it uh, means to build this apologia for the sake of those that are learning in this, in this area. Some of you are so experienced in giving testimonies that you've never thought through the steps involved. But this is a learning process, all right? Who, who's going to be first? And give us something concerning the way they were before they were saved. Most of these would be people that maybe were saved after they were in college or, or around that age or older. Uh, primarily because a child's testimony usually 
he didn't have enough time to get involved in a lot of things. Uh, so some of you that perhaps uh, had, uh, had some, some kind of problem, some kind of need in your life that ultimately brought you to Christ. What's, somebody's got one, I'm sure. We had a couple last time, but let's do it again. Everybody's so bashful and shy. How many of you were saved after high school? Ah, oh, see, you've got a whole bunch of them. How about one of you just sharing? What was your life like before you met Jesus Christ? Some of you are ashamed to tell us. John, tell us. Okay, now just let me interrupt you a second, John. I don't want to spoil your testimony. We'll give you a chance to finish it in just a second, all right? But I want to make the point right here. Let's see now, what we've, what we've had is just simply a background. Now, that's good. Your testimony may not be the same. It it, would be totally different because everybody has different experiences. But the thing we're after in this sort of a testimony is to, first of all, say what life was like before. It's a part of, if you want to call it this, the bait involved in sharing the gospel with a person. And there's nothing wrong with using bait. If you're going to fish for men, you've got to use bait. And uh, the bait that is presented is, here was my life. And, and it's, that's a, uh, John's a good example here, simply because here you have a life where, in a sense, outwardly, he had the things that were desirable. Outwardly, the things that were attractive. But he had a great big hole in his heart. See? And that makes a beautiful transition, especially with a person who thinks he has everything. Now, I would just say that you, you want to be flexible in giving your testimony. Because, first of all, you have the, the concept and the idea that there are some people who, if you told them that you had everything, they would say, well, that's you, but I had nothing, you see. So you want to know, you want to know your subject. If you've got a man, for instance, who's not had a college education and all of these things and so on, you might want to emphasize more the... Um, uh, the things that would relate better to him, like uh, the drinking and the carousing around, but not finding satisfaction in those things. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, this is just a sample. This is just an idea. It's a good one. Now, the second thing is, then you tell what were the circumstances that led up to your salvation. And John, go ahead. I want to hear the rest of this. <laughs> Amen. Now, that's great. Now, listen. You see, there are a couple masterful strokes in that testimony that you can pick out. I don't mean to take away from the the reality of it as a real-life testimony and just pick it apart and analyze it. But I think for, our, for the sake of learning, it's really, it's really super. Because, you see, not only in that testimony does John be able to, to say, look, I, this is where I was. And this is, what, uh, this is how I came to Christ, and this is what Christ did for me. But in the process, he threw in that extra little witness that it is possible for an individual to say yes in their head, in a sense, and, and uh, give mental assent to what is said, and yet not come to a change of mind concerning Jesus Christ. Remember what repentance really is. Repentance is a change of mind. And uh, the emphasis of repentance is upon changing your mind concerning who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. 
And a person walked, two people who did not know Christ, walk into a room. One of them, with his lips, says, sure, I'll buy that, but doesn't have any real root in his heart at all. Another simply not only changes his mind concerning Christ, but in turning to Christ, he turned his back upon the things of the world. We often think, when we use the word repentance, people think in terms of it being a turning away from sin. It's really a positive word. It's a change of mind concerning Christ. But if you change your mind properly concerning Christ, then you will have a sense of God's holiness, which gives you a sense of your sinfulness, and gives you a sense of the sinfulness of the things that have been a part of your lifestyle. And naturally, there is a change. When the change of mind comes concerning Christ, there's a change of life that corresponds with it. So that's what's involved. No one ever yet has cleaned up his life so that he could accept Christ. You can't do that. You accept Christ and he cleans up your life. But repentance is a turning, a changing of mind concerning Christ that obviously leads to a different lifestyle because there's a turning of your life as well. But you see, there is something that the, the person you're leading to Christ should be aware of. I seldom lead a person to Christ, but what I emphasize to them, the importance of a walk with God. And I think one of the missing elements in a lot of the little pat formulas that we have for leading people to Christ, whether we use the CBAs of salvation or the ABCs or the four spiritual laws or a lot of other things, there a lot of times is the missing ingredient is an emphasis on the holiness of God and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And so we need to, we need to, to cover that. And that's, that's where a testimony covers this. Now, you see, one of the things that I've learned, and I particularly have to use this because I was saved at five years of age, you know, and I can't remember too much of what my life was before I became a Christian. I can remember that because I told a lie, my mother put me in a corner and punished me. And uh, I remember that after she did, then she began to explain to me why I told a lie. But you know, that's really not too impressive to an adult because it sort of puts it on the category of, of, of sort of kid stuff, something, well, you were raised with it all your life, you're bound to be a Christian. You see what I mean? And so what I often will do is I'll pick up on testimonies that I've heard. Like John's given me another, another little niche you'd see there. I can sit down and I can say, I, you know, I have this doctor friend, fine surgeon, and uh, he shared with me one time in a group with a group of us, that this and this and this and this, and I'll share his testimony in order to emphasize certain things, if it's convenient. Keep it in your kit bag. Keep in mind the things that can be used. Look for every tool you can or every bit of bait to bring a person to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the things that I've, that I've often done is use a layman's testimony with a layman simply because a preacher's testimony doesn't mean a whole lot. I'm in that awkward position of being a preacher. And whether I wear my collar backwards or not, doesn't make a whole lot of difference. That's the way they vision, envision me. A little halo over my head and uh, wings sprouting out of my back, you see. And all you have to do is say, you're a preacher, and everybody just assumes that's the case, you see. Or there are others that uh, have heard some awful bad things about preachers. 
as they've had a couple of experiences where they were cheated by preachers, and they right away jump on it, you know. And they put me in the same category with all the rest. I don't have a chance. So what I do is I say, yeah, I, I may be a preacher, but you know, we've got a whole congregation full of people. One of the things that happened with Michael when I was witnessing to him over in the Holy Land, he said, he said in essence, you would expect you to, to feel this way. I said, but I've got a congregation of people, Michael, that are just like you. Just exactly like you. Oh, couldn't be anybody just like me, see. Had to come and see for himself. He found out the whole bunch of you just like him, see. And I, I think it's, it's really neat to be able to draw upon this and share the testimony of others as well as your own testimony where it's appropriate. All right? Now, again, you can see how this fits together. And, and uh, we could probably just go on all night just doing this. Uh, and we all could learn from it and gain from it. But I would suggest to you that some of you that have friends within the fellowship here, that you work on your testimonies and then exchange your testimonies so that you can read each other's testimonies and really get a handle on what others have said. And uh, I would never hesitate in the process of things to go to those passages in Acts that we shared with you last week and share the Apostle Paul's testimony. That testimony that Paul gave, that apologia, is one of the finest testimonies you'll find anywhere. And so utilize the testimony. I think that as you're, as you're helping a person learn to be a witness for Christ, that especially for the new believer, you can give a testimony that, that uh, or he can develop a testimony that will have tremendous impact. And if I were to improve on anything, and of course it's difficult in giving a testimony for you, uh, because all of you uh, have... Uh, you know, know the Lord, and, and at least most of you do, I, I trust, and so it's awfully difficult uh, in, in doing that. But when you're with an unbeliever, sprinkle the testimony with Scripture verses. In other words, here I, uh, you know, am self-satisfied and think I'm, I'm, I'm just going the right way, but I'm really going the wrong way. And uh, you can say, there, the, the book of Proverbs says, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that describes me. See what I mean? And then you can say, but I, I had this emptiness inside of my heart. And uh, I, just, I just didn't find any real peace in my life at all. And then, again, you can put a scripture verse in. Uh, in a case like that, you can... You can say uh, you, later on you found that the way, that uh, uh, all for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and it was that coming short, reaching, striving for what I thought was my ideal life and yet always coming short of that which God intended for me. You see what I mean? Verses like that can be thrown in and uh, utilize Scripture. The reason I say that is because no matter how powerful your testimony is, God has promised above anything else to bless and honor his word. And that word of, of scripture, sprinkled within your testimony, whether you define it as being scripture or not, just not presenting scriptural concepts, but quoting scripture, will become a great weapon in breaking down barriers and bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now this is what we're after, and we hope that you will utilize this and teach others how to do it as well. Now, that's enough from last week. Let's just talk for a few minutes about 
of the remaining material that we've given you. And primarily, this is review. We know you can read it for yourself, and we hope you will. We have just given you, in this last session, uh, some tools to use briefly in giving the overall picture of one coming to spiritual maturity. What you have in your notes is a little different. I made a few changes without looking at what we had done in the overhead. There's a little bit of difference, but I think you'll get the point, especially as you look back over your other notes and see the correlation. But there is uh, just a checklist before you of things that you would want to review. First thing is the matter of knowing, not just feeling. The matter of knowing for sure that, uh, that this individual is indeed saved. Remember that 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not, that you, uh, your, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. In other words, it is possible to have a spiritual phony. And so therefore, it is good for you to go back over this matter of assurance of salvation and talk about it just briefly again. For as Martin Luther wrote many years ago, for feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. Base the assurance of salvation upon the word of God, not upon subjective human experience. Obviously, there is a subjective part of salvation. And there's a vast difference between a subjective person or something that is subjective in part and uh, subjectivism. If a person is involved in subjectivism, it means that everything is evaluated on the basis of how he feels. There is a subjective element to the gospel. There is feeling involved in the gospel. Who of us does not in some time or another in our spiritual experience felt extra good when God has done something for us? Which of us have not gotten up from our knees after either coming to Christ or getting right with God and the sense of peace has flooded our soul where we didn't feel good? But I very seldom point a person to Christ. But what I ask them pointedly the question, how do you feel? I examine the subjective. How do you feel? They say, I feel relieved. I feel clean. I feel... And they go on. All of these things they feel. Now I admit it's a trap. Because then I say to them, what is going to happen tomorrow morning if you don't feel this way anymore? And they'll look at me as if to say, you mean I might not? And then I'll tell them, you know, there are many mornings I wake up and don't feel like a Christian. And if my salvation is dependent on how I feel, then I would be up and down constantly. But salvation is not a feeling. Salvation is predicated in fact. It is not on the basis of how I feel. It's on the basis of whether Jesus Christ is God. And if he is God, 
and did all the things that he said for me and accomplished all that he said for me, a God who cannot lie because of his immutability will never fail me. I may fail him, but even though I fail him, he abides faithful. It's up to him. And that is the assurance of salvation. So utilize that. Say with Paul. Get them to say with Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So you can check that. Secondly, check this matter of being consistent in devotions, Bible study, prayer. Remember the Bible, the Bible and the Word of God is likened to food. Job 23, 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, Christ said, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Teach them to feed upon the word of God. Another good passage is in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 2, where it says, as, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Many, many passages of scripture that could be used along this line. Prayer has been likened by some to air or breathing. The inhale being the, the receiving what God has for us. The exhale being confession of sin. Uh, the inhale being the, the matter of, of, of predicating our thoughts upon who God is and what he has done, and the exhale, the confession of sin in accordance with 1 John 1.9. Bishop Trench, uh, Richard Trench, uh, who is one of the finest of the, of the Greek scholars uh, of yesteryear, uh, wrote a very touching little poem when he said, Lord, what a change within us one short hour spent in thy presence will prevail to make. What heavy burdens from our bosoms take. What parched grounds refresh as with a shower. We kneel and all around us seems to lower. We rise and all the distant and the near stands forth in sunny outline, bright and clear. We kneel, how weak we rise, how full of power. Why, therefore, should we do ourselves this wrong or others that we are not always strong, that we are ever overborne with care, that we should ever be weak or heartless, or that we should ever weak or heartless be, anxious or troubled when with us is prayer, and joy and strength and courage are with thee. Tremendous thing to realize what prayer can do in the life of an individual. The tragedy of it is we don't realize what it will do for us. We don't realize that the God's alternative to worry is prayer. So prayer and Bible study are vitally important. And then the person needs to be sure by this time that he is involved in a local church and finding Christian friends and growing in fellowship with them. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 again. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works as part of the function of a fellowship of believers. To provoke unto good works, to provoke unto love, not forsaking the assembling, of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. How in the world can you possibly provoke others unto love? How can you possibly provoke them to good works if you're not involved in the ministry of the local church? 
It's an involvement that all of us should have. And therefore, to carry, fulfill that responsibility, we have to ha be with Christian people. Reverend Owen Glassburn wrote the words, A room of quiet, a temple of peace, a home of faith where doubting cease, a house of comfort where hope, hope is given, a source of strength to help us to heaven, a place of worship, a place to pray. I found all this in my church today. It's a good word. There's so much more that we gain from fellowship with Christian people. By this time, after these nine, ten weeks that you've spent with this individual in nurturing him and carrying him on in the things of the Lord, by this time, this individual should certainly be involved somewhere in a local church, if not your own church. And you should, I always make it a point when I'm dealing with people to make sure they understand that they should find a good Bible-believing church where they can grow. Somebody I led to the Lord a couple weeks ago said to me, uh, after I'd said this several ways, different ways, and trying to encourage them, I said, you need right away, next Sunday, which was two days away, I said, you need right away to get involved in a local church. You need to find a church that teaches God's Word, a church that, that uses the Bible so that you can carry your Bible and follow along and study. And I'm going on like this. And they said, what's wrong with this one? And I said, nothing's wrong with this one, but I just want you to know that I didn't lead you to Christ to get you into my church. I led you to Christ so that you could grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, and I want you to go on with Christ. And I don't want you to get the idea that we go around giving people this message, trying to indoctrinate them to come into our church. It says, you can choose to come to this church if you wish. I, I'd really enjoy having you visit. But if this church doesn't meet your needs, you should find a church that does. I'm not really scared. <laughs> They've been here ever Sunday since. So, you know, they're liable to get hooked if they hang around too long. But you see what I mean? I think as sincerely as possible, you should tell the person, look, I've got a great church, and it meets all the criteria for me. But I'm not telling you this to get you into my church. I am telling you this because you need to get into a church. Do you know why you have to do that? You watch. You bring somebody and say, okay, now as a part of your coming and going on with God, you should come to church and I want you to come with me to my church. Three weeks later, they move from the community. Guess what? Because they cannot come to your church, they probably won't go to a church at all nor will they have any real criteria whereby they could choose a church. And so, again, stress to the person, if they're not already involved in a church, to get involved if they are, to be consistent in that involvement. Find out where they've been going. You know, I, I wouldn't hesitate a bit. I never do. When a person says, uh, yeah, I've been going to such and such a church. Well, how, how often have you been going? Well, I've been going to Sunday morning service. Really? Is that all? I mean, ask, act, act non-plus about it. Of course, this puts you on the spot. If you invite them to the evening service, you might have to show up too, you know. I'm not really worried about the prayer meeting crowd, but uh, some of the rest of them, we'd have to wonder about them, you know. I've had more people come through that door in the last several weeks and say to me, you know, uh, Pastor, uh, do, do you know so-and-so? And I'll say, yeah, I know him. They said, well, they invited me to be here tonight, and I haven't seen them anywhere. <laughs> what a joke, I'll tell you. That's funny. I feel like saying, well, call them up and invite them to come next week. <laughs> That's really great. 
<laughs> but in any event, you know what I mean. And you need to t get the person to, to realize that the Christian life involves more than attending a service. It involves getting into the life of the church, getting into the fabric of what's happening here. See? All right. Then again, make sure concerning this matter of walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.18, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would, really, I would really stress at this point in review the context of Ephesians 5.18. Do you know what the context of Ephesians 5.18 is? Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. You know what the will of God is? Redeeming the time, oh excuse me, it starts out, redeeming the time for the days of evil. The days are evil. All right, how do you redeem the time? How do you make the most of your time? All right? By doing the will of God. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. What is the will of God? In that context, it's be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is God's will that you be filled with the Spirit. If you are not filled with the Spirit, every moment that you live that way, you are wasting time. Do you know why? There is no productivity from your life at all in the energy of the flesh. If you're not filled with the Spirit constantly, then every moment that you spend as far as eternity is concerned is a waste of time. That's why I like to do what my father emphasized over and over again, keep short accounts with God. Keep it up to date. Got sin in your life right now? For goodness sakes, don't sit there. Say, Lord, I agree with you, that's sin. Boom. He'll forgive, cleanse, and you can go on. You're filled with the Spirit. But you see, if you fail to confess that sin, then it becomes just a build-up and build-up and build-up of one thing after another. Because if you walk in darkness, there's no provision for the constant cleansing away of even the inadvertent things that we do that God calls sin. See? So you're wasting time. From the flesh, because no flesh can glory in his presence, from the flesh emanates nothing that can please God, only the Holy Spirit's life within us, lived out through us, can please God. So you're wasting time. You think it doesn't matter if, if you go the full day out of fellowship? And you bow your head at night and get right with God? You just lost 24 hours, friend. And that's an important 24 hours. Because face it, we don't have too many of those things before we check out. Now, somebody's working on that. I heard in the news today that the scientists are saying, this ought to be real great news for the Christians, the scientists are saying that within the next 50 years, they're going to have the secret to longevity, and everybody's going to be living to be 125. Isn't that great? That's really interesting. It makes me so confused, you know, because one minute somebody, some scientist is saying we're all going to be annihilated because we've got nuclear power plants, and another guy says we're going to live to be 125. Now, I really don't know which to believe, do you? The important thing is that God tells us how long we should live on the average. Three score and ten, maybe four score if we have reason of strength. They pump a little more adrenaline into us. We might get a few more years out of the thing. But really, that's not the important thing at all. This life is merely a time of testing and preparation, a time where we have opportunity to log time for eternity. Think of it. We have a period of time to prepare for the glory of Jesus Christ that will be the main theme of heaven throughout eternity. And every minute you waste out of fellowship is wasted time because it does not contribute to his glory. See? 
All right, now, emphasize that and say with the poet, Oh, that in me the sacred fire might now begin to glow, burn up the dross of base desire, and let the spirit flow. That's the, the thing that Christ was speaking of when he said, Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this spake he concerning the spirit. It's the spirit of God flowing through your life that makes all the difference in the world. Now we pointed out here the idea in connection with that of reckoning yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. You might just look with me for a moment at Romans 6. We did touch on this, but once again, just realize that there are four steps involved here leading to victory in the life of the Christian. First of all, you are to know, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative or destroyed. Verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead. First thing is we're to know something. Secondly, we are to reckon. Verse 11, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. We've likened that to, to simply recognizing a fact. Recognizing something is true even though it doesn't seem to be so. Right? Reckoning ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. We do not have to serve sin or be a slave any longer thereto. And then verse 13, the first part, stop yielding. Neither yield ye your members as instruments, hoplon, as we saw Sunday night, weapons of unrighteousness unto sin, but rather yield, yield yourselves. And that's the fourth thing, start yielding. Stop yielding, start yielding. Incidentally, you might be interested to know that in verse 13, the word yield, the first word is present imperative. Constantly yield yourselves. Constantly don't yield yourselves. Or in other words, stop an action that's already going on. Stop yielding yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness. But the word yield in relationship to righteousness is the aorist tense, which is in a point of time. In a point of time, once and for all in a sense, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Same idea and same word. In Romans 12, verse uh, 1 and 2, where it says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Exactly the same word. So those are the four steps. No, reckon, stop yielding, start yielding. And that's a handy little something to have as well. Then you also want to talk to them about dealing with temptation. This is the victory, to feel the tempter's mighty power without appeal. To know the pull that money has and never kneel. To be entranced by honor's glare and have no urge. To hear the voice of passing pomp and not submerge. To be uplifted, lauded high, and sense no pride. To gain an orator's great fame and never stride. To be exalted to the skies, yet self-disdain. To be condemned and set aside and not, not complain. This is victory. Realize again that temptation is not sin. Christ was tempted, yet without sin. Temptation is not sin. The pull that you feel within your heart, the desire that you feel to do things that are wrong, that is not sin. To yield to it is sin. And therefore, when you feel the pull, Depend upon the resources you have in Christ and claim victory in the name of our wonderful Lord. 
And if you fail, confess your sins quickly. Again, in case you've missed it after eight years of teaching you this, to confess means to say the same thing, to agree. Homo legale means to say the same. Homo, the same. Legale, a word, a concept, an idea. Therefore, to have the same idea that God has. What does God say? God says your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't lie to God. Don't say, God, I don't know why I did that. God's not impressed at all with that kind of talk. You know what he wants you to say? God, you're right about me. You're right. You said my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I didn't believe it. I thought I could trust my own heart. I found out that I couldn't. I found out that I couldn't trust my own heart. And you were right about me. And you're right about that thing I did. It's sin. And God will immediately forgive you and cleanse you. You can go on talking if you want. But he's not impressed with anything else. He's so happy to have you back as a prodigal son come back to his home. He's already killed the fatted calf and put the ring on your finger. So don't even, don't even worry about saying, explaining to God just exactly why you fell into the temptation. Now, Lord, it was like this, you see. I mean, I really want you to understand that I didn't mean to do that. You know good and well you meant to do that or you wouldn't have done it. It's just that you didn't know how mean you could be. You didn't know how sinful you could be. If you just agree with God concerning that, you'll have a whole, it'll be a whole lot, you'll be a whole lot better off. I read a funny little thing today. A little girl was crying and somebody asked her what was the matter. Oh, she said, things are terrible at our house. Mom lost her psychology book and now she's using her own judgment. <laughs> well, I thought immediately, you know, that's, that's a fascinating little thing, but how much better it would be, you know, if people would just realize that when people lay this book aside and start using their own judgment, we're in big trouble. That's exactly what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Do you hear that? Don't trust your own judgment. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will call the shots for your life. He will direct your paths. You see, that's all the difference in the world. And so you're in trouble anytime you put this aside and use your own judgment. And so we praise God for those that are following the word of God. All right. Now, develop as well the habit of prompt obedience. Prompt obedience. Emphasize this again. Whatsoever we have, or whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we do two things. Keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. That's in 1 John 3, 22. And uh, again... Just uh, thinking in terms of this matter of obedience. Many years ago, I was struck with uh, some of George MacDonald's uh, poems and uh, memorized several little parts of some of them. And this particular one is, is one that, that really is gripping in terms of obedience. I said, let me walk in the field. He said, no, walk in the town. I said, there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers, but a crown. I said, but the skies are black, and there's nothing but noise and din. And he wept as he sent me back. There's more, he said. There's sin. I said, but the air is thick, and fogs are veiling the sun. 
He answered, Yet souls are sick, and souls in the dark undone. I said, I shall miss the light, and friends will miss me, they say. He answered, Choose tonight if I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, Is it hard to decide? It will not seem hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look at the fields, then set my face to the town. He said, My child, do you yield? Will you leave the flowers for the crown? Then into his hand went mine, and into my heart came he. And I walk in a light divine, the path I had feared to see. We have to teach people that obedience to Christ is by far the superior course of action. There's so many people that are like Saul. Yea, I have performed the commandment of the Lord in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel. And Samuel says, Sorry, I can't hear what you're saying. All I can hear is the bleeding of the sheep that you have taken in disobedience. Oh, but the sheep, you understand. I got them so I could sacrifice them to God. Oh, my friend, listen. Hear Samuel's words. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and disobedience as iniquity and idolatry. You know why disobedience is as iniquity and idolatry? Simply because whenever you disobey, you set yourself up as God. What could be more like idolatry than for you to worship you instead of worshiping him? I believe that obedience is one of the highest acts of worship that man can do. And you can go through all kinds of form and ritual. And God will not be impressed until when he prompts you, you obey. Well, again, all this is review. We've got to quit reviewing here in a minute. Stress the importance of being in the center of God's will. Pick up every illustration you can to try to convince the people that he that does the will of God abides forever. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, had he had his way and I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with the tears that I cannot shed. I shall cover my face with my empty hands. I shall bow my uncrowned head. Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me, mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. Now that should be the attitude of believers today. His will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, and at any cost. That should be our theme. And that's what we should teach others to have as well, to live in the center of his will. Teach them to be an effective witness. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Teach them how to use the apologia. And remember that the life must back up the lip. 
For me, it was not the truth you taught, to you so clear, to me so dim. But when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. And from your eyes he beckons me, and from your heart his love is shed, till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. That should be true of you as a discipler. It should be true of the person who is seeking to be a witness to another. Then again, stress the value and the importance of the word of God in making the Christian what he ought to be. Give him those four steps that are found in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You have them down, don't you? Somewhere in the flyleaf of your memory. First of all, it says that all scriptures God breathed and is profitable. Four things. Four doctrine. That's where God makes something plain, that he has a standard. This is the way it is. Man cannot alter God's standard. That's his standard. I don't care how you try to twist and distort scripture. Sin is sin, and God has called sin, sin, and he's not going to change his mind about it. And he has said certain penalties are involved for certain sins and all of the rest of it, and that is God's standard. I don't care what society does. It's still God's standard. That's the first thing. That's doctrine. God has a standard. Secondly, reproof. God's standard differs from man's thoughts. That's the reproof. We don't like it. We're short of the standard. We're guilty before God. That's the reproof. Then, for correction, you'd better change. That's what the correction is. You'd better change. Face it. God's standard is right. Yours is wrong. All right? Then what do you you have to do? In accordance with what God has provided, be brought into keeping with his standards. And he tells us how to deal with it. And it's not in our own strength and our own power. And then for instruction in righteousness. That is learning by doing what he tells us to do. Structured learning process. Actually the discipline and the structured training that comes in the word of God where he says, as you've received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. Walk not as other Gentiles walk, but walk in the light as he is in the light etc., etc., and so on and so on. The scripture tells us how to walk, where to walk, when to walk, why to walk, when to run, when to flee, when to fight, when to follow. It tells us all of those things. Our problem is we don't know the word of God. Most people that are down on this book aren't up on it. That's the problem. You get up on the Bible, and then you'll know that God has given you all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Precious things of wealth untold, stores of silver and of gold, God hides oft within the ground, till by seeking they are found. In his word he's hidden too, riches that he means for you. Search the scriptures, precious store, as the miner digs for ore, finding wisdom not of earth, far above a ruby's worth. Search, and you will surely find treasures to enrich the mind. Search the scriptures every day. Search and find their hidden way. Like a pearl within its shell, promises that fear dispel. Search and find God's words impart, treasures to enrich the heart. Search search the scriptures, finding there, Christ, its chiefest treasure rare, through whom God makes wealth abound in each life where he is found. Search and find what Christ will do to enrich all life for you. And finally, teach him to walk by faith. Doubt sees the obstacles, faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. 
Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions, who believes? Faith answers, I. So on I go, not knowing. I would not if I might. I'd rather walk in the dark with God than to go alone in the light. I'd rather walk by faith with him than go alone by sight. As you have received Christ Jesus, how did you receive him? By faith. So walk ye in him. Seek not the things which are seen. They're only temporary. Seek the things which are not seen by faith. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The assignment, I think, is self-explanatory. Use this checklist in one of those appointments near the end of your time just to make sure that your friend has grasped the concepts that you've taught him as you've pointed him to the reality of Jesus Christ. So I challenge you again. Be a disciple of men. Now, two weeks before the 20th of June, when all the classes start, let me just say quickly, next week I'm going to bring you a very special message, a very special message on the dangers of Christian maturity, a very interesting Old Testament story that illustrates for us the peril of spiritual maturity. And we want to share that with you next week. And uh, we hope that you'll come, bring some friends with you. I think it's going to be a very special time around the Word of God. The following week will be awards for the children's affairs, the uh, Brigade Pioneer Girls. They're going to be giving awards, and we'll all be involved in that. And so we'll have it right here in the sanctuary, and we hope that you'll come and enjoy that. It'll be a time of testimony and, and sharing of some of the things that God has done uh, throughout this year in the brigade program. And then the following week, we begin our elective program. Four classes are being offered. An orientation class, for those of you that have not been able to attend the Sunday orientation class, we're running one on Wednesday nights, and a good sign-up for that, by the way. There will be the teaching of the first five books, a synthesis of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And sign-ups are coming along real well for that as well. And... Uh, then we have a good-sized class, Taking Bible Study Methods. Keith Copley, uh, who finished his second year at Dallas Seminary, will be teaching that. It basically is the freshman course on uh, Bible Study Methods that they teach at Dallas Seminary. Howard Hendricks teaches it, and he'll be teaching basically that same course. And then the last uh, class is a class that we'll be teaching that will just be open to anyone that wants to come uh, through the time on the fruit of the Spirit call it a fruitful vine, we'll be looking at the words that are involved in the fruit of the Spirit, explaining what they are, so that you understand not only how what the fruit of the Spirit is, but also all of the connotations in Scripture that give us an understanding of what God expects for us in that regard, and what the Holy Spirit wants to produce through the life of the believer. So we'll be talking about that, and we have a good group of those people as well. So it's going to be a great, great summer of learning. We have a program for the whole family, blast for the children, and uh, teenage activities for the young people. College young people during the summer will be gathering with us because many of them wanted to take Bible study methods and some of these other things. And so uh, they'll be with us. But we have a program for the entire family throughout the summer. We don't slow down around here in the summer. We just change gears just a little bit, put it in overdrive, and keep moving. 
And uh, so uh, if you expect a, a sweet slumbering summer, you'll have to find some place to sleep other than here because we're going to keep moving. And we hope that you'll be able to join us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for what we know you're going to do in our hearts and lives. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to be very, very wise in even the choice of those classes that we'll take during the summer. We want more than anything else in the world to be in the center of your will in everything that we do. And so guide some to take those classes that are most pertinent for them and guide each teacher and give them the direction they need to bring forth the truth from your word that will cause real growth. We pray that the reality of Jesus Christ will be seen in all that we do. And then, Lord, as we have come to the conclusion of this time together in studying this very interesting study of discipleship, oh, Lord, will you please just give us a desire to disciple others and then bring divine encounters across our path so we can lead them to Christ, nurture them, disciple them, teach them how to reproduce so that we'll see multiplication in the church rather than merely addition. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.